Amen. It's, it's been a joy being here with you. I, I, I agree with your pastor. The, the singing has been excellent, the enthusiasm, the emotion, the, uh, the energy. I call it energy. I always, when I go to churches, there's certain tests I do. One of the tests is, do the people talk before we start? You know what that means? You like one another. Okay? I've been in some churches, there's no one talking because you know why? They don't like one another. And that, that's usually a bad sign. So this is a good sign, uh, Pastor. So it, it's good if you've got to quiet them down they, and they don't listen to you. They like one another. That's a good thing. Tonight, if you have a copy of God's Word, look with us to the book of John, chapter 6. The book of John, chapter 6. We'll begin reading with verse 1. It is an amazing story that has so much information in it and so many lessons for us to learn. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there is much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given things, he distributed to them that who was seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their field, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, as we read this passage. Fathers, we hear it again. I pray, Father, that we'll see it in our mind's eyes. Father, let us be there. Father, let us experience what's taking place so that, Father, we will know the lessons you're teaching us today. Father, we ask you that you take your word and use it, Father, like a mirror that, Father, we may see ourselves. And, Father, use it like a sword to cut our soul. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Harold Morris, in his book Twice Pardon, tells the compelling story of being an all-star athlete who ended up on death row. It was right after college, he and some friends went for a ride at night, and Harold was driving across the state line from Florida into Georgia. They stopped at a convenience store, his friends got out of the car, and Harold stayed in the car, and all of a sudden, he heard these loud bangs, and his friends running out and said, Drive, drive, and he took off. What he did not realize, they went in to rob the store, and they killed the man working there. 
Now, because Herod was in the car, and because they crossed state line, this is now a federal offense, and not only that, Herod was also arrested for murder. He ended up in one of the most violent prisons in Georgia. By his own account, he said the only way that he could survive, he decided I would become the meanest, toughest prisoner in the prison. And according to some, he succeeded. While he was in prison, one day, Harold saw this, this 12-year-old boy watching a, a baseball game between the inmates. Harold tried to walk over there, and the guards wouldn't let him. But the next game, they did let him go over there to talk to the boy. The, the boy was Cliff Miller. He said, my father's a state trooper. My mother is a, a nurse here at the, at the prison. The next day, he talked to him a little bit more. And, and Cliff was wearing this Jesus First t-shirt. And, and Harold was amazed, intrigued. One day, during a basketball game with Harold, Cliff noticed that he was a good player. And he asked Harold, could you teach me how to play? And so... But, from a fence, he began to teach Cliff some drills that he learned in college and taught him how to be a better basketball player. Then one day, while listening to the radio, Harold heard a high school basketball game, and Cliff had scored 27 points. He became the most valuable player of that game. And they were interviewing him on the radio, and they said, Were you nervous? And Cliff responded, No, sir, win or lose, I knew God was with me. You see, I'm a Christian. And everything I do in my life, I do for Jesus Christ. I give him the glory. Those words penetrated Harold's heart. And he got on his knees on that roach-infested prison and gave his life to Jesus. He gives Cliff the credit for doing a miracle. He said, that boy did a miracle in my life. In our text tonight, there's another story of another boy that God used to do a miracle. It's an amazing miracle. It's a very important miracle. You say, how do you know that? Because this is the only miracle that's listed in all four Gospels. It's also the miracle that's performed in the front of the most people. It's so important, God put it in the story, in his word, four times. Tonight, I want us to talk about when you need a miracle. As we look at this text, and I want you to notice some lessons from our text tonight. The first lesson is very simple. Miracles always begin with a problem. Miracles always begin with a problem. We see this in verse 1. Jesus is teaching on the side of the Galilee, um, the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd, crowd is there, and they're talking to him. And then it says in verse 5, lifting up his eyes, then seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So, here's the story. Jesus is teaching. Large crowd is coming, and then it's getting dark. Jesus looks, and there's thousands of people out there. And he said to Philip, no, where are we going to get the, the means to feed them? Now, there's a reason he asked Philip. In fact, there are two reasons he asked Philip. Why did he ask the other disciples? Well, here's the reason. Philip is the most analytical disciple there is. We know that because if you read the gospel account, every time you see Philip, he's analyzing something. He is that engineer mindset. I mean, there are certain people like that. It's just how they think. They will analyze something to death. That's Philip. He's going to analyze this to, to get the answer. But the second reason he asked Philip, Philip is from that region. So Philip knows the area. He's an analytical thinker. So Jesus says to him, okay, Philip, i give you a, a difficult assignment. Where are we going to get enough food? Where are we going to find this? Can you imagine Philip trying to figure it out? 
You got 5,000 people, over, really over 5,000 people. You don't have the funds, and you got to feed them. What do you do with your problems? You know, basically there are three ways we can handle problems. Some people, some people exaggerate their problems. Whenever they tell the problem, it's always bigger. You know, I'll never get out of this. Well, that's it. It's all over with. You know, no one has ever had this problem. I'm pretty sure somebody's had that problem. Well, I have no friends out there. No one's listening to me. I'm listening to you right now. You know, some people exaggerate the problem. And if you exaggerate the problem, you'll never deal with the problem. If you exaggerate the problem, you make it so big, you become paralyzed, and you won't do anything. And some people make it so big, they just decide, I won't even try to get out of the problem. Some people, they don't exaggerate the problem. They underestimate the problem. They, they'll say, they got a problem. They say, well, that's no big deal. Oh, I can handle this. Oh, I don't need any help. Oh, it'll just go away. Oh, this is not going to make any difference in my life. Those people, they put blinders on, and what happens, they don't see the problem to deal with the problem. Now, I, I do a lot of, I, when I was a pastor, I did a lot of counseling, especially marital problems. And, and, and here's what I've learned. I, listen, I'm, I'm, making a, I'm making a statement here. Bear with me. Most women exaggerate the problem. You okay out there? There's not one man in this room nodding his head. You look in fear, okay? <laughs> but most men underestimate the problem. I've had men in my office say, well, I don't know. What the, there's no problem here. Here's a problem. You're in my office. So some exaggerate and some underestimate, and both types will never deal with the problem. The third way is to examine the problem. Don't exaggerate. Don't underestimate. Examine the problem. You take your problem and you look at it carefully, like a scientist uh, looking at an experiment, like a CSI team examining the clues at a crime scene. You analyze, examine the problem so that you can deal with it. And sometimes the best way to start is ask, what is the problem? I mean, that's the first thing you do. A lot of times as a counselor, that's all I did. People would tell me their problem, and then I would tell them their real problem. So here's a problem for Philip. How do we feed 5,000 people? Well, Philip, again, is the analytical person. Look what he says. Verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. I mean, you can see Philip. Philip's out there. He's looking. he got his you know, calculator out. He's trying to figure out. Okay, Jesus, here's a problem. We need 200 denarii. Now, now, by the way, that's two-thirds of a year's salary. Philip has figured it out to how much money exactly. Remember the Good Samaritan story last night? That was hey, a two denarii. That's two-day wages. Philip says we need 200 days of wages to pay this. He's, and that's just so everybody get a bite. He's figured it out. But did you notice the question Jesus asked? Look at it. You see, Jesus asked an interesting question, verse 5. He says, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? King James Version says, from whence? The Greek word literally means where. That's not the question I would have expected Jesus to ask. I would have expected Jesus to ask, how? How? They don't have any money. So, so where means nothing, right? You see what Jesus is asking Philip? Where are we going to get 
the food. The answer is standing right in front of Philip. Where are we going to solve that? Where are we going to get the food? Where are we going to solve this problem? The answer, Philip, is standing right in front of you. His name is Jesus. Do you see it? He is standing next to the giver of life. He is standing next to the king of kings. And Philip doesn't get it yet. He is standing in front of the Alpha and the Omega. But he doesn't get it yet. He is standing in front of the Lord of Lords. And he still doesn't get it yet. He is standing in front of the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He doesn't see it yet. He is one of the chosen apostles. And he says, we can't do it. And he's talking to the one who created all things. The question is, where are we going to do this? Where are we going to find the answer? You see, Philip was so focused on the problem, he forgot to look at the solution. And the solution is right there. You see, most of us, when we have a problem, the question is not how we're going to solve the problem. The question should be, where are you going to turn? Where are you going to turn when you have a problem? And the answer is Jesus. That's what he's saying to Philip. Philip, where are we going to go? I'm standing right here, Philip. All you got to do is ask. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with being practical. We need to be practical. We need to be practical like Philip. But sometimes we are so practical we forget turning to God. And some people, they, they, they want to claim faith just to excuse their laziness. Well, I don't want to do anything. I'll just have to say I have faith and I don't do anything. That's wrong too. Whenever you have a problem, you turn to your greatest resource, and your greatest resource is Jesus. The key to this, as Philip is looking around, look at verse 6. I love this verse. He said to this, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He says to Philip, okay, I got a question for you. But he doesn't tell Philip this is a test. But it's a test. And I know exactly what I'm going to do. Jesus is testing Philip. Now listen, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. Sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes. Our biggest problem in life are tests from God. To see our faith in him. Not always. We, li we live in a fallen world. But sometimes. Our biggest problems in life are tests God wants us to go through. So that we can see how mighty he is. Jesus will always test us. Before he gives to us a bigger assignment. We see it through scripture. We always go through a test before the biggest assignment, the next assignment. Before David ever fought Goliath, he fought the lion and the bear. Before Elijah ever stood up to the prophets of Baal, he was in that, that valley during the drought for two years. Small tests always come before big tasks. That's what the lesson here. Small test always comes before big tasks. God's going to test us before he gives us that next assignment. Now that makes sense. We know this in the real world. I know a ship is not seaworthy in, a, in the dry dock. You have to go through the storm. A, a, a soldier is not battle proven after boot camp. It's only after he faced the enemy. And so faith is only as good as you have faced it in life. So God will test us in order to prepare us for the next task. And so Jesus is turning to Philip. He's testing him. Because of the next task he's going to receive. All task boils down to one question. Do you trust God or not? That's it. 
every test you'll ever go through, it boils down, do you really test, do you believe God and trust God in this problem? Jesus is about to reveal the, the biggest problem in his life was not the biggest problem in life. The biggest problem was they were not looking at Jesus, that he is the answer to all things. And then again, verse 6, I love the verse. He said to him, he said this, to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus always knows what he's going to do. You are never going to surprise Jesus. Jesus will never say, well, I didn't see that coming. Whatever you're going through, he's not surprised. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do in any problem we have. And sometimes, again, not all times, sometimes our problem or test that God wants us to go through. Now, please understand, God tests but Satan tempts. There's a difference. God tests, but Satan tempts. You know the difference? Testing always strives to bring out the best. Temptation always strives to bring out the worst. Testing always comes from God. Temptation always comes from Satan. There's a big difference. When God tests us, he wants us to pass. When Satan tempts us, he wants us to fail. So when you're going through a test, don't think God is tempting you. Now, Satan will try to take the test of God and turn it into a temptation, but God is not the one who tempts us. It's impossible. James writes in James chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James says there's a testing to our faith. That, that word means uh, the genuineness of our faith. It's the word putting something through fire to get the impurities out. Job says in Job chapter 23, verse 10, When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. God tests us. And James says he, he tests us to grow our faith so that we'll be perfect. That word means to be complete. So whenever we go through testing of God, he is trying to make us better. He's trying to show us something, and he's preparing us for the next, next task. But Jesus knew what he was going to do. If you're going through a test tonight, please understand God's not surprised. God is not surprised, and God knows exactly what he's going to do. Second lesson. Miracles happen when we give what we have to Jesus. Miracles happen when we give what we have to Jesus. Here is Philip. He's trying to figure out how to feed 5, 000, over 5,000 people. And then, verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? you got over 5,000 people. They're hungry. Now, almost humorous to me. Here comes Andrew. And Andrew brings a little boy to Jesus. Now, I love Andrew because every time Andrew is mentioned in the New Testament, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Every time. We need more Andrews in the church today. Just bringing people to Jesus. So he brings this boy to Jesus. Andrew says, I don't know how this is going to help. He's right. I don't know how this is going to help, but I need for you to know this boy is here with this lunch. He says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? 
Now, that, that word boy in the Greek, word, in the Greek language is, is padereon. It, it means small child. It means a five or six-year-old. Okay, it's not a teenager, not 12 years old. He, he's there for some reason, maybe with his family. don't know if he's there. But, but notice what he has. He has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, that, that word there in, in fish is apsaria. It means small pickle fish. Think sardine, okay? I remember growing up, we used to have, in Sunday school, they used to have these little posters to demonstrate our Sunday school lesson. And I told this in a church one day, and someone found it for me. I actually have a copy of this. I never understood it because the picture, some of you may remember this from Broadman, it was a picture of a 12-year-old boy handing a trout to Jesus. And I never could understand, what was he doing with a trout? And I said that, someone found the picture. I have that in my, in my study now. And, and, but that's not the word. The word is pickle, I mean picklefish. It's sardines. This is his lunch. And not only that, he has five barley loaves. Not just loaves, barley loaves. You say, what's the difference? Barley loaves was an inferior bread. In fact, if you were in the Roman army and they wanted to put you in punishment and, and rations, they gave you barley bread. It was an insult in Jesus' day to offer anyone barley bread because it was poor food. If someone came to your house and you offered them barley bread, that, that was an insult. So here's a small five-year-old with sardines and barley bread that if you offered it to anyone would be an insult. I mean, what are you going to do? Here's 5,000 people, and all Jesus has is a Happy Meal. What are you going to do? This boy is small, he's insignificant with a meaningless meal, but he was in the right place at the right time and he was prepared. In the eyes of the world, he was nothing, but in the hands of God, he was everything. And by the way, do you realize in the eyes of the world, we're nothing? If you're a believer, the world says that our Christianity is worthless, the world says our Christianity is only, Christianity is only a, a, a crutch, the world says we are insignificant, but we're children of the king. The world says we are worthless, but God says we're priceless. And here's this child with this meal, insignificant by every standard of the world, but in the hands of God, something's going to happen. This boy gave all that he had to Jesus. He was prepared. He gave it all that he had to Jesus, and God is going to do a miracle. What's in your hand? What do you have? You give it to God, he'll do a miracle. What about your time? What about your time? Do you give your time to the church? Do you give your time daily to read the Bible? Do you give your time to pray? Do you give your time to learn God's word? What about your time? What about your talents? What talent has God blessed you with? Do you use them for God? I, I told the story Sunday night uh, at Lone Oak. We started mission work because of Katrina, the Hurricane Katrina. We had a, a partnership with Gulfport, First Baptist Church at Gulfport. And I said, we're going to send some teams down there to do mission work. And so I had a man in my church come to me and said, Pastor, I don't do mission work. And I said, okay, do you work a chainsaw? Said, yeah, I know how to do a chainsaw. Do I look like I know how to use a chainsaw? No, Pastor, you don't look like you know anything about a chainsaw. You're qualified, okay? Just go down and use the chainsaw. He went down there, and they, they, they did some work. Came, he came back, came in my office, and said, 
is that mission work? I said, that's mission work. You're helping people in the name of Jesus. He said, can I go back? Absolutely. We sent over 20 teams. We had people who never used their talents for God. They went down and used their carpentry skill, electrical skill, the cleanup skill. They just came back excited. Can we do more of this? We started doing mission work in New Orleans. We started doing mission work in other places in the United States. Why? Because they gave what they had. What's in your hand? Your treasures? Your money? What's in your hand? Now, a miracle is about to take place. There's something very fascinating. Now, this story is fascinating to me. The one person there that doesn't need the miracle is the boy. He has food. Think about it. The one person there who doesn't need the miracle is prepared. And God's going to use him. You see, I believe you are either going through a problem now or you should be helping somebody with a problem. You're either in need of a miracle tonight or you're going to be the reason to help somebody with a miracle. If you don't need a miracle, maybe God wants you to be the miracle in someone's life. This boy gave what he had to Jesus. He didn't need the miracle. He gave what he had to provide the miracle. Have you given everything to Jesus? Have you given everything? You, I know what you're thinking. People always say, well, I don't have much. What's your excuse? Well, well preacher, it's, it's insignificant. You know, if God had only given me some great talent, oh, if only I could play the piano, if only I could sing, I, 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 would, I would use that gift all the time. No, you wouldn't. Not if you're not using what God's given you now. There's nothing insignificant in the hands of God. So whatever you think is insignificant, God says, no, it's significant because I gave it to you. Or, or you, some people say, well, I, you know, I would love to give it to God, but it's not enough. No, if God had only given me more, I, I would give it to him. But there's not enough. I, I would give God time, but I don't have enough time for myself. I, I, I would give money, but I don't have enough money for myself. I would give more if only I had more. No, you wouldn't. If you're not giving what you have now to God, you're not going to give more if you had more later. This meal wasn't enough in the hands of a boy, but it was enough for the crowd. This boy really couldn't share it technically. That was his meal, but God used it. You see, when you give everything to God, God gives you more. You need more time? Give it to God. You'll be amazed how much more time you have. Some people say, well, you know, I would love to give it to God, but you know, I can't release it. I don't want to let it go. I, I know what God wants me to give, but I don't want to give it up. I can imagine this little boy, if he's like every other five-year-old I know, I don't think he wanted to give it up at first. Sometimes it's hard for take our fingers around what God has given to us. Maybe our life. Maybe our children, grandchildren. Are you willing to give them up for the kingdom of God? I would tell our church, and I, I would have pushback when I say this. I would tell our church, you need to pray that God may call your children to the mission field. And people say, Pastor, I can't say that prayer. Why? But, but that's too dangerous. No, what's dangerous is not being in the will of God. If it's God's will for them to go, you need to let them go. 
And I watched people hold on tightly. Say, but, but pastor, that, that, I need them. No. Are you willing to let go to give what God has given to you? Well, some people say, well, I, I have something. But if I give that, it's going to be ridiculed. People, people laugh at me. What I have is just silly. There's nothing more silly than giving some sardines and barley loaves to Jesus. And Jesus turned it into a miracle. What's in your hand? Third lesson. Miracles happen when we are obedient to Jesus. Miracles happen when we are obedient to Jesus. Jesus said in verse 10, he said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. Again, this is in four Gospels. We know a little more of the story. He had the men sit down, but he had all the people sit down in groups. He gave the food to the disciples to pass out. I want you to notice what's happening here. It's very, very subtle. We must be obedient before God will do a miracle in our life. First of all, they listened to Jesus. If they did not listen to Jesus, the miracle would not have taken place. He said, sit down. And he said, they fed those who were seated. The implication is, if you didn't sit, maybe you didn't get food. Jesus said, I want you to sit. I want you to go in groups, and then I'll do a miracle. Why would he do that? Go back and read the Gospels account. You'd be amazed. Every time there's a miracle, the obedience took place before. You remember, you know, he said, take up your mat and walk. Remember that from Sunday morning? You obey, and the miracles are going to take place. The lepers, go tell the priest. Show yourself. They did it. When he said Lazarus come forth, remember, he, they had to remove everything, move the rock. There's always that time of obedience before the miracle takes place. God will always wait for us to listen to him before we do the, before he does the miracle. We want God to do the miracle before we listen. It doesn't work that way. If God is telling you to do something, you need to be obedient to God. You need to listen to God. And when you're obedient to God and you listen to God, God will do a miracle in your life. God waits for our obedience before he does the miracle. So we listen to Jesus. And then secondly, we leave it to Jesus. We leave it to Jesus. The miracle is not through the disciples. The miracle is through Jesus. We ultimately have to leave everything to Jesus. Now, we are obedient, but it is Jesus who's going to do the miracle. We are obedient, but it's God working through us. So he's asked the disciples, for example, to help him. I love this principle. We find this in Mark. He gives the food to the disciples. They go and share it. Why? It's a principle found throughout Scripture. God will do what God can do when we do what we can do. God will do what God can do when we do what we can do. Go throughout the Scripture. Why did David use a slingshot to kill Goliath? Why didn't he just go out there and say, God, sick him? Why didn't he just go out there and say, God, send a lightning stroke? No, he did a slingshot because David knew how to use a slingshot. Why did Samson use the jawbone of a donkey? Why didn't he just use his bare hands? Because it was something there. He used what was available to him. Remember the raising of Lazarus? Jesus says, come forth. And then he tells them to remove the rock. Isn't that amazing? He just raised a man from the dead. Do you not think Jesus could have moved the rock? 
Do you not think Jesus could have sent a lightning bolt to destroy the rock? Do you not think Jesus could have sent an angel to move the rock? Do you not think Jesus could have caused an earthquake to swallow the rock? No, he said, hey guys, you remove the rock. Why? Because they could do that. You see, we play with God sometimes. We pray, but then we don't want to do anything. We pray, and then we sit back, and God says, no, you do what you can do, and I will work through you. We pray for the salvation for our families, but we never share our faith with them. We pray for the church to grow, but we don't visit. We pray for a new building, a new project, but we don't give. We pray to God, and then we stay in the safety of our homes. God will do what God can do when we do what we can do. But we have to leave it to Jesus. Finances, yes, you pray. You tithe. But you still have a budget. You're sick, you better pray. Only God brings healing. But take your medicine. Church growth, you need to pray. But you still need to go out and witness and share faith and invite people to church. What is your part? I mean, tonight, just think a minute. What is your part for this church growth? Do you invite people to church? When's the last time you invited someone to church? Now, I know what some communities do. Some communities, well, everybody's going somewhere. No, they're not. Sunday morning in Kentucky, 80% of Kentuckians do not go to a church anywhere. That's the statistic. My first church, we had 12 people my first Sunday. And they told me at the front end, they said, Pastor, everybody's saved in this community. We just want you to preach and bury us. That was my job description. Okay. So one day I asked one of the deacons, hey, let's go drive, drive down the road. I said, who, who lives there? Oh, that's so-and-so. And I said, okay, where do they go to church? I don't know. I think they're Methodists. I don't know. Oh, and they, what about, well, you know, they might be Presbyterian. I don't know. Oh, they're Baptists. They, they belong to a church. They don't go there. But we got back. I said, do you realize we've got 25 prospects? If they're not going somewhere, they're, we're going after them. And we started reaching out. And all of a sudden the church realized, hey, we can invite people to church. They didn't want to offend people. You're not offending people to come to church. And so our church started growing a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. When I left, we were running over 65. Because they realized they have a responsibility to go out and tell people. God will do what God can do when we do what we can do. He told them, pass it out. And then, did you notice what happened? He told them to gather up what's left. Twelve baskets. In, in that day, a master would leave food for his servant. That's what they would do. Jesus provided twelve baskets, for, one for each apostle, as a reminder of obedience. What God has given us to do, we need to do it. Now, a lot of us procrastinate. That's not good. I told a story the other day about a gold mine. Let me tell you another gold story. The gold rush of California, 1849, you know the story. People from all over America rushed to California to make a fortune in the gold rush. The gold rush was started by James Marshall. James Marshall discovered gold in Sutter's Creek. He was the one who started. He went to the town and told them, hey, I found gold. Everybody came for the gold rush. James Marshall died later in the 1880s, only a few miles from where he discovered gold. He died broke. You say, how could he die broke? 
because he never filed a claim on the property. He was the one who discovered the gold, but he procrastinated to file a claim and died broke. How many times God has given us something, we procrastinate and we lose out. God loves to take something small and insignificant and change the world. God took the tears of a baby and melted the heart of Pharaoh's daughter to save Moses. God took a little bush in the desert and he showed Moses how to free his people. God took a small rock and in the hands of David killed a giant. God took a small boy with a small meal and fed over 5,000 people. God took a group of uneducated, unsophisticated men and turned the world upside down. God loves to take the small, the insignificant to change the world. In upper New York, there's a place called the Camp of the Woods. I told this story a couple of years ago in, in East Kentucky. And a lady came up and said, I've been there, I've seen this. Because in that camp of the wood, there is an American $1 bill framed. And there's a story behind it. Years earlier, the missionary named John Belcher of Hong Kong was trying to raise money for a children camp to reach Chinese children. He had a vision, a passion, and he tried to get money. But the only money he received was $1 from a little girl who gave him her ice cream allowance money. And that was it. He wanted to have this camp, but no one would give money. When the Children Christian Fund decided to sell their orphanage in Hong Kong, they went to him and said, hey, we have a camp for you to buy, $250,000. He said, I don't think you won't want to hear my counteroffer. <laughs> What's your counteroffer? One dollar. They said, well, I'm sorry. They walked away. The next year, they came back. No one was interested in the camp. They came back, and they asked him, we'll sell you this camp for $1 if you promise you would share the gospel with anyone in the camp, regardless of who they are. And he agreed. And he opened a children's camp worth $250,000 with a $1 bill given by a little girl who gave up her ice cream allowance money. God loves to take the insignificant and the small to change the world. 2,000 years ago, God took an instrument of death, the cross, to change the world. That instrument of death, a Roman citizen would not utter the word crucifixion. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. It was a horrific death. And God took an instrument of death and turned that into our saving grace. What do you have tonight? For some of you, you have your life. It's possible there may be someone here tonight that you have never given your life to Jesus Christ. That's what you need to give tonight. You, you think, well, I'm insignificant. No, you're not. God created you. You are important to God. Jesus died for you. Will you give your life tonight to him? I mean, you say, well, I, I don't, he doesn't want me. Yes, he does. He died for you. If you were the only person on this planet, he would still have died for you. Will you give your life to Christ? How do you do it? Very simple. You admit you're a sinner. Saying, God, I can't save myself. I have messed up. 
I, I, I've messed up. I, there's no way I can save myself. And by believing, believing that Jesus Christ died on a cross 2,000 years ago for you, died, buried on the third day arose. And by confessing. All that means is you agree with God. Agree with God that you give him everything. And the Bible says he will come to your life. We do that tonight. For others, for those of you who are believers, what's in your hand? What is it that you have that you can give to God? What is it you maybe you're holding too tightly? You need to loosen your grip. Or what is it you think is so insignificant? But in the hands of God, he can do miracles. Would you stand and bow your heads for a moment? Tonight, you may be here, and maybe you're going through a, a time of testing and trial. I want to encourage you by reminding you that Jesus knows what he's going to do. And if it is a testing of God, then all he's doing is preparing you for a bigger task. It may be a task to help somebody else with that same problem. It may be a task that God's going to bring something to your life that you're going to need more faith. But whatever you're going through tonight, please understand, God is with you. But tonight, as we give this time of invitation, what's in your hand? As I said a few moments ago, for some, it's your life. You've never given it to Jesus. As we begin singing, if you just come to the front and you talk to your pastor and say, I need to give my life to Jesus. I can't save myself. I've messed up in my life. Pastor, I really thought I was unsavable. I thought I was insignificant. I don't have any talents. I don't have any abilities. I, I'm, not, I'm not educated. I, I, I don't have money. That means nothing. You are important to God because he created you in his image. And he wants to spend eternity with you. Will you give your life tonight? For those of you who are believers... Maybe you need to come to the front and talk to your pastor and say, Pastor, I, I'm going to give what I have. I'm going to give my talents, my time. I, I'm going to start inviting people to church. I'm going to start sharing my faith. I'm going to give to God. I will do what I can do so that God can do what he can do. See, your pastor needs to hear that. I've been a pastor for 40 years. Most encouraging things I've ever heard through the ministry our people said I'm going to step out pastor our father we thank you for your love and father we thank you for your grace we thank you father for the miracle that happened 2,000 years ago that we're still talking about today we thank you father for this little gift that was given and changed a life father we thank you for this little gift that was given it changed the lives of many people. We thank you, Father, for this little gift that was given that is still changing us today as an example. And so, Father, now during this time of invitation, speak to us. Father, I know that Satan will do everything he can to stop it. I know that he will tell people every reason why not to give their life or, or give what they have. I get it, Father. But we ask you to bind Satan and get him out of here. That, Father, we may do your business. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.